Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to 2 Timothy. You know, a theme that we have been seeing throughout our first chapter here in 1 Timothy is the idea that we need to stand. We need to stand for the gospel with courage and loyalty. And we've seen the importance of this both inside and outside the truth, in that sometimes we need to stand for the truth because there are those who will come into the church and seek to bring false doctrine. But there are also those who are outside the church walls who stand opposed to the very concept of God and will persecute us because of it. The Word of God invites us to stand with those who have stood with Christ throughout the centuries. We need to be loyal. Loyal to the Word of God. We need to be loyal to the servants of God that we stand with. And that's what we're called to do here in this text. Now, loyalty is not something that's as valued today as it has been in the past. Many of us, when we would get a job, we felt loyal to our company because we felt that the company was loyal to us. That's gone out the window, hasn't it? Pretty much, it's what have you done for me lately? There's no stability, no loyalty. And so that erodes the concept of loyalty. We've seen it within marriages too, haven't we? When almost half of the marriages in the United States end in divorce, the idea of loyalty to our spouse has also pretty much evaporated. We see problems in the home as a result. And then, even the lack of loyalty can creep into the church. Some people view church as a consumer-type organization. We come to the church as long as it pushes the right buttons, but when it ceases to push the right buttons onto the next church. There's not a loyalty that develops to where we look and say, I will stick it out through thick and thin. I will be loyal to the church that God has called me to. God wants us to be people of loyalty. And that's brought out crystal clear in this text. I want you to look at the 13th verse. And as we begin our study on this concept of loyalty, the Apostle Paul points out the importance of loyalty to... First of all, the Word of God. As believers, we need to evidence a loyalty to God's Word. And as we'll see in this 13th verse, we do so by following the right pattern and we do so by guarding it. Making sure that we stand with the teaching that God has revealed in the pages of the Word of God. It's vital that we do so. We are exhorted, first of all, in this text to guard sound teaching. Look at the 13th verse. What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching. Now I want us to think about that first phrase that Paul shares there in the 13th verse. What is he talking about when he says we're to take what has been given and that we are to guard it, we're to hold it, we're to make sure that we keep it? What is he communicating? 
I believe what he's communicating is something that is very important, something that we need to grasp. That keeping as a pattern means that we are to hold on to God's truth. And what is our pattern? The pattern is the teaching of the apostles. The teaching that was given by men who were charged by God to distribute His revelation to the early church through teaching, through writing. That's our pattern. You know, it's interesting. The word that's translated pattern in this text, it's a word that communicates a standard. Now, when we think of a standard, what we're thinking of is something that you are to compare something else to. And if it matches up to the standard, then it's correct. And if it doesn't match up to the standard, then it's incorrect. Suppose, for instance, if in carpentry, people just sort of guessed what a foot was or what an inch was. They said, well, you know, this feels like it should be an inch to me. Some of my carpentry appears as though I probably built things that way. But the idea is an inch is an inch. And we have a standard by which we compare rulers. Everybody doesn't make up their own ruler or their own yardstick and bring it in and say, well, this is what I think it should be. They come in with something that matches up as close as it can to a standard as to what an inch or a foot or a yard would be. Well, the Word of God is our standard. We match up what is taught by how it matches up to the pattern that has been given. So what Paul is saying to Timothy, first of all, in this text is, anything that's taught, anything that you teach, anything that somebody else teaches, make sure that it matches up to the standard. And what is the standard? It is what I have taught you, what I have shared with you, the teaching of the apostles. That means that when God's Word says something, we don't look through the lens of our culture and say, well, you know, I, I don't know whether this is relevant or not. It means that we don't take our own pet ideas and pet peeves and move along and say, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. We look at what God's Word says and we say, is what I'm saying, what I'm doing, matching up with that. And that's what Paul wanted Timothy to understand. What you have heard from me, the very words that I have uttered, keep those as a pattern of sound teaching. Make sure that they match up. Now, what is sound teaching? If we looked at this in the original language, the words that the NIV translate as sound teaching would literally say healthy teaching. In other words... Words that promote spiritual life. Isn't it easy to get off the topic of what God says and just go with a current topic, a current thought, and make that something that draws a lot of people so that we can talk about it and have a good time together and entertain one another? But is what we're teaching something with substance, something that will produce spiritual growth in the hearts and the lives of the hearers. Sound teaching makes a difference in people's lives. It changes them. It helps them to grow. You see, unhealthy teaching will revolve around and promote a philosophy or anything that would take the place of God's truth and God's message. God wants sound teaching. He wants us to measure our words and make sure that what we say produces spiritual life. Now, notice 
This 13th verse also says this. What you have heard from me keep as a pattern of sound teaching. And look at the context in which we're to deliver this sound teaching. It says, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. How do you follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith? You don't pick your own program and say, I'll follow Christ in my own way. You know what we do to follow Christ? We look at what He has described for us as the way to follow Him. The teachings of the apostles. You see, if I come in and say, hey, I'm going to follow Christ in my own way, and I'm sure it will communicate, there's not going to be anything of the Spirit that produces that. That's all flesh. That's all the old sin nature. But if I look at what God has revealed in His Word and what God says, this is what you will do if you follow Me, that gives me a guide. You see, my sin nature is all about me. It's all about pleasing myself. It's all about making sure that I get my way. And when that becomes my guide, I'm not going to follow sound teaching. I'm going to follow whatever I feel like doing. And I'll rationalize. And I'll talk about it in a way to where I can spin it to make it look like what I want to do is really spiritual. But in reality, it's not of God. It's not of God's Spirit. I need to make sure that I follow God's Word. And that in so doing, I follow Jesus Christ. But always within the context of faith in Christ Jesus and always within the context of love. You know, there are a lot of churches that are doctrinally right down the line. But you know what they're missing? Love. I like what the Apostle Paul shares with us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he was talking about an issue that was dividing the church. Eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And he makes this statement. Now about food sacrificed to idols... We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, sometimes we can be doctrinally astute. We can know exactly what each verb in the original language means and how it portends to to any particular subject. We can pass the most exacting theological exam, but we do all of that without love. God's Word and God's truth should be within the context of love. And I would submit to you that if we really understand God's truth, it's going to promote love. That will be the natural outflow. A deeper faith in Jesus Christ and a deeper love for Him and for others. And that's why God calls us in this text to make sure that we follow Him and stand for God's truth within the context of faith and love in Christ Jesus. Now, something else we see. We're exhorted to guard sound teaching. But thank God, we're also empowered to guard sound teaching. Look at the 14th verse. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. 
I want you to think about what he says in the first part of this 14th verse. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And think about the historical context here. Paul, again, writing to Timothy. But what he's telling him to do is defend the good deposit. Now, what does the good deposit refer to? What had been entrusted to him by God, the Word of God. Remember, Timothy was the pastor at the church at Ephesus. As the pastor, he had a responsibility to share God's Word, God's truth. So when the Word of God says in this text, guard the good deposit, what he's saying to him is, defend God's truth. But I want you to think about the process here. Where was Paul as he was writing this? We know that the Apostle Paul was in prison awaiting his execution. So when he says to Timothy, guard the good deposit that was given to you, really what he's talking about is the fact that he had handed over the mantle to Timothy. Paul was no longer able to go out and defend the faith the way he once had because he was in prison. But he had developed someone that he had entrusted the truth of God to that that person might do it in his absence. And a very important principle comes out of this text when we think about it. There would better be someone who's willing and able to carry the torch when we're no longer able to. Think about this for a moment. Many, many countries that once sent missionaries to all parts of the world who had seminaries, filled churches, who stood strong for God's truth, now have empty churches. Missionaries are now being sent to them. And the churches are monuments to a bygone era. What happened? Somewhere in the process, someone didn't guard the deposit. And now we just see vestiges of a once thriving faith in those countries. God wants us to take seriously the importance of picking up the mantle, picking up the torch and carrying it. And this is what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do. Look, I'm done as far as what I can do outside the walls of this prison, but you're not. Guard that deposit that's been given to you. You pick up the torch and you carry it. Now, a question that that begs is this. If I weren't on the scene ministering in the church body, and I'm not talking about me, I'm having all of us ask this question, what difference would it make? Now, first of all, if I'm uninvolved and I say, well, it really wouldn't make any difference, I'd better really start asking myself questions. Why? Why am I not a part of the church body contributing to the work of God? But the second question I need to ask immediately on the heels of that is, whose life have I poured my heart into so that there's someone to take over when I'm gone? Who is my Timothy? Who will guard the deposit when I'm no longer able to guard it? That's what needed to be asked. And you see, this issue is so important because not only do we have those outside the church walls 
that we need to guard the truth with. But there are those inside the church walls as well. Look at what Peter says. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. You know what the Scripture is saying? There are going to be people who will come into the church secretly and start to erode the standard of truth that God's given us. And as they erode it, they introduce teachings to take the place of God's standard, what the Bible calls heresies. The word heresy simply means to stand against, and what they're standing against is God's truth. As believers, we have a responsibility to make sure that we guard the truth of God. But thank God we don't do it in our own strength. Because look at what the 14th verse goes on to say. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. God's Spirit has given us the standard. He's given us the Word of God, hasn't He? He inspired it. Which means that He guided the authors of the Word of God so that word for word, the very revelation of God is being communicated. That's why we take a literal approach to interpretation of Scripture. We want to see it in its historical context, in its grammatical context. We want to see what the Word of God is saying, and that becomes our standard. But listen, Not only did the Holy Spirit inspire the Word of God, but when we read the Word of God for ourselves, the Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God is there to teach us God's truth by speaking to our hearts through the Word of God. Now, I want you to think about a couple of verses. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where it says this, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. We have so much more than just a book. The Bible. It's living. And the Spirit of God takes the very words that are written in the Word of God and brings them to life in us as we depend on Him. So part of the way that we guard the Word of God is by drawing on the resource of the Holy Spirit and His ability to guide us and teach us. John said this, speaking of false teachers, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So that's what happens to people who leave the teaching of God's Word. The idea is if you leave it, you never had it because the Spirit of God teaches you. Look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, And all of you know the truth. The Spirit of God puts us to a place to where we know God's truth. 
Listen, all of those verses that you memorize, all of the sermons that you sit under, all of the Scripture that you read, it's filed somewhere in the gray matter. And you know what I see the Holy Spirit do all the time? I haven't thought about a verse in years. And a situation pops up and the Holy Spirit says, hey, remember this verse? And boom, there it is. And I need to respond to it. I'm preparing a message. And as I'm preparing a message, the Spirit of God says, remember what you read back here? That fits. I'm not that smart. But the Spirit of God is. And He guides us in what we do. But here's the thing. You have to be in the Word of God to guard the Word of God. And you have to be in the Word of God to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit by bringing it to light and teaching us. So God is telling us we can guard the Word of God, but we guard it through the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. But then Paul continues. And as we come to verse 15, we see that not only are we to be loyal to God's Word, but we're to be loyal to God's servants. And he gives us two examples. Now, one example is a good example, and one example is the bad example, and we're going to start with a bad example. You see, there are some who follow God when it's expedient, and they have what I like to call a selfish loyalty. Yeah, I'll follow as long as it fits, but man, if it starts getting inconvenient, if it's going to bring personal cost, all bets are off. To me, verse 15 is a very sad verse. You can see the loneliness of the Apostle Paul as he shares this passage. Look at what he says. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Does that sound lonely or what? There is the Apostle Paul in a prison awaiting execution, and he's all alone. He felt deserted. In fact, the word desert means to turn away. So the idea is, in his hour of need, everyone that he had ministered to in the province of Asia, which would be modern-day Turkey, that's fitting since it's Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> Every one of those people turned away from him. They wouldn't look to him. They wouldn't minister to him. They wouldn't try to engage with him. Why? For fear. For fear of what might happen if they went to the prison. Or for fear, perhaps, even of what might be said about them because you're going to visit that prisoner. And let me say this. Lest we look at those people with judgment, let me tell you about something. There was a church that had a search committee. And they were turning down everybody. They were looking for the perfect pastor. Sorry, I was taken. No, I'm kidding. Looking for the perfect pastor. So you know what somebody on the search committee did? They put the credentials of the Apostle Paul on a resume, sent it in to the search committee, 
and out of hand, it didn't even make it through the first tier. Done. Single? <laughs> Can't do that. Been in prison? Right. You know? So they nixed it. It was done. It was done before it even started. And you know, we probably would do the same thing that many of them were doing in deserting, turning away from the Apostle Paul. But Paul had been a faithful servant. He had served God well. And because he had, he deserved right treatment to be honored, to be loved, to be supported. And I want you to look at two names of people that stand out. Now, think about this for a moment. Having your name recorded in the eternal Word of God as a turncoat. That's serious, isn't it? When we look at the end of the 15th verse, they just deserve a mention because perhaps they had led the way in people turning away from Paul or... Perhaps they had been particularly loyal and then dropped the Apostle Paul. We don't know the story. We don't know the context. Timothy did. We don't. Lephygelus and Hermogenes, they did. They deserted him and they were held up as examples to Timothy of how hurtful that truly was. You know, as believers... We need to love and support those who love and support the truth of God. Not looking and saying, hey, it's convenient to love and support these people, so as long as it doesn't cost anything, or as long as it goes well with me, I'll support it. But man, the minute things don't, see ya. I'm out of here. I'm done. I don't want to be an honorable mention as a deserter. And that's what Hygelus and Hermogenes were. But there's another example that's given. And this is exemplary service and loyalty. Onesiphorus. When we come to verse 16, the Scripture says, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because... He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now look at the example that's held up here of this man. He refreshed the Apostle Paul. Now this could have meant actual physical care for his needs. Or it could refer to the ministry of encouragement. You know something? Even servants of God can struggle with discouragement and loneliness, and difficulty. And the Apostle Paul was in that place. Nesiphorus understood that. And look at what he did. Rather than being ashamed of the Apostle Paul and his imprisonment, the Scripture goes on in verse 17 to say this, On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched for me, until he found me. Now, the word that's translated search hard, that, that's a great translation. You know what it means? It means to look at the expenditure of a great deal of energy. Now, perhaps what happened was this. 
When the Apostle Paul was imprisoned, you probably had a Roman bureaucracy in place that wasn't real excited about anyone going to see their prized prisoner, the Apostle Paul. So you know what they did? They made it difficult. We're not going to tell you where he is right away. You know, I've, I've visited a few prisons, and, and they don't make it easy on the visitors. It's difficult to get to where you need to be, and nobody gives you directions. It's, it's very confusing, very difficult. But imagine in the first century, with many dungeons and prisons scattered throughout Rome, and you have to find the right one. That would take some effort, wouldn't it? Onesiphorus was willing to do that. He searched hard for the Apostle Paul so that he could minister to him. And so the Word of God is upholding that as an example that sometimes we need to reach out and minister to other people even at personal cost and difficulty. It's not all about convenience. Sometimes it's about looking and saying, this needs to be done and I'll see it through. And I'm going to go and seek to minister to this individual. And that's what the Word of God tells us in this passage. And then we come to verse 18. What was Paul's response to Onesiphorus? It says this, May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. What Paul is saying is this, look, on the day that he appears before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, I want him to find mercy. Now, what does the word mercy mean? In this text, the Word of God is not talking about Onesiphorus needing mercy in the sense that he's a sinner and he'd be spared from judgment. On that day, the judgment seat of Christ, it's not about our judgment Because the Word of God tells us that when we trust Jesus Christ, we pass from judgment into life. We're no longer condemned. So that's not what he's talking about. But mercy carries with it the idea of feeling pity towards someone when they suffer unjustly the affliction of others. Now, that's not my personal definition. I got that out of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And what he's asking is that God would take into account the difficulty that Onesiphorus suffered in ministering to the Apostle Paul. But you know, this opens up a broader perspective to me. Although Paul just touches on it, it's something that we should all consider. The Word of God tells us that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our lives. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We need to consider that if I give an answer for my service to God and the things that I've done in service to Him and the church body, What's going to be his assessment? How will he view my participation? This is the ultimate job review. Some of us get nervous when we have a job review at work. And we have to go in before the the boss and, and, and give an answer as to what we've been doing with company time, right? This exceeds that by a mile. 
But it's not about your eternal destiny. It's about your reward. Because in 1 Corinthians, the Scripture says this, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds his foundation on this using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day... Now there he uses the same language that he's using here in 2 Timothy. The day will bring it to light. In other words, have you built what you do on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Or is it all about me? All about my convenience? all about personal recognition. Am I going to be able to stand before Jesus Christ and say, I serve you because I love you and I serve the church body because I love them and wherever you plugged me in, that was fine by me. But I served to the best of my ability. If that's the case, gold, silver, costly stones. It's put on the altar, it's tested, and fire preserves it. But, if I did absolutely nothing, if I was just concerned about me, and that's it, something else. It's wood, hay, and straw. And your entire life is assessed by the Lord as a pile of ashes. In other words, you are highly effective at doing absolutely nothing. That's the idea. Notice it says the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test, now not the quantity, but the quality of each man's work. And then I'm so thankful for for verses 14 and 15. If what he has built survives, he will receive reward. If it is burned up, now look at this, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. See, it's not about condemnation. You'll be saved. You'll be in a relationship with God. But you'll have very little to show for it except a trophy of God's grace. I hope that when I stand before Jesus Christ, there's something left there. Not a pile of ashes. I don't want to look back on my life and say, I accomplished absolutely nothing for God. And some people will look and say, well, for a pastor, that's easy. Let me tell you something. Pastors are human, too. We can have wrong motivations. It can be about us as well if we're not careful. And we need to stand and make sure that we're doing things to serve Jesus Christ because we love Him. Let me ask you this morning something you can only answer between you and God. Where are your loyalties? Are they with the truth of God's Word? Are they with the servants of God and the church body that stands for His truth? Or is it all about you? I can't answer that for you. I can't see into your heart. And no one can see into your heart. But you can. And you can ask the Spirit of God to point out the areas of your life that need to be surrendered to Him, that you might live for Him in loyalty. Now maybe this morning there are some here who haven't taken that first step into the entrance of a relationship with God. 
because you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Let me share this with you. You can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can stand with His truth and have it change your life through the power that God has to transform anyone by inviting Jesus Christ into your life. All that requires is coming to the place to where, number one, you admit that you're a sinner. You look at your life and you say, I haven't measured up to the standard. Number two, God sent Jesus Christ into this world to save sinners. We've seen that as we've studied through the Timothys, that that's a truth, and it's throughout the Word of God. God sent Jesus to die on the cross that He might take your place. You see, the Scripture says that we all deserve death because of our sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross, He took upon Himself my sin and your sin that He might deal with it and bring about the forgiveness of God. So let me ask you this morning, have you come to the place where you've received what Jesus offers freely? Forgiveness of your sin, an entrance into the relationship that you can have with God of the universe who loves and seeks to forgive you? If you have turned from your sin to God, or if you want to turn from your sin to God more accurately, God is there to receive you. All you have to do is by faith express your desire to receive the forgiveness of God and to turn from the way you've been living and turn to Him. And that's all it takes. Now, some people look and say, that's too easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus Christ. And for many who are trapped by sin, it's not easy for them. But the transformation that God can bring to your life, the change that He can bring to you, is amazing. So I would invite you, if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, trust Him today. Invite Him to come into your heart and into your life. And if you're a child of God, if you've made that decision for Him, let me also say this. Make sure that you have something left in that day. That it's not a pile of ashes. It's wood, hay, and straw that gets burnt up. Make sure that it's gold, silver, or precious stones. Crucial that we do that. Let's pray.